Welcome to today's edition of Stuck in Misery. I'm your host, Mark Bergen. I'm really excited to be joined by today's guest. Sean Connolly is a man of many hats. He's a former NFL kicker, a father, a husband, a yoga instructor, and now an author of a new autobiography entitled The Point After. Sean, I've read the book. It's an inspiring read, but I've got to ask, you don't place much of the blame on placeholders or long snappers at all. And that's why I want to start today's show. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't put much blame on them. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really such an interesting battery when you think about, you know, the snapper, the holder and the kicker, you know, you have 1.2 seconds, you know, sometimes you know, at, the, at the most to get that kickoff and, you know, the kickers, you know, we, you know, the spotlight is, is on the kickers. And so if, if the snap is slow, there's, you're still expected to make the kick and you know, when it all comes down to it, that's, that's, <laughs> and that's your job. So, uh, you know, there's, there can be bad snaps, but if it gets down, you know, you still got to kick it. <laughs> what inspired you to write this book now? Yeah, there, there was a couple things, you know, the, the, the one was, you know, just, I've read a lot of sports books and, you know, they're typically about, you know, the ones that are like super successful, you know, they have long careers and, you know, afterwards they're able on to, able to move on and do other things, you know, but for me, my career was a lot more typical the, the, the most athletes or NFL players, the average career is 2.3 years. And so that's about where I've, I, I landed, you know, just in and out of training camps. And, you know, when you look on the sidelines and you see 45, you know, 48 players on the sidelines of an NFL team, the vast majority in the next two to three years are going to be gone. And I really struggled with my identity when my, when my career ended. And I, and I, I still see this a lot in the news today with players, like with, with mental health issues and depression afterwards. And I, I was stuck just like these players there because, you know, from the age eight until, you know, 26, when my career like was over, over, you know, for 18 years, that's who I always thought I would be. It was, it was an NFL football player. So when it fit, it ended and it wasn't on my own terms, I really struggled with that. And I just thought I would share that story along with also, you know, why my career ended, which is a, a big thing happening today where I, where I overtrained and I trained so much that my body got beat up at a, uh, you know, at such a young age. And we're seeing so much today of this, of this specialization and young athletes where they train all year long in the same sport and they're burning out even, even sooner. Some of them aren't even making it through high school before they burn out. That's a great segue to my next question is, so the concept of law of diminishing returns, where it's almost mm-hmm. like you get too many chefs in the kitchen to where it's more detrimental than beneficial to where you overtrain. At what point did you realize that you were doing that with your kicking career? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I was just so, I had so, such tunnel vision. It wasn't to, to the very end. Because for me, you know, my career was in the 80s and 90s where the whole attitude was like no pain, no gain. And so I never gave it a second thought. Well, there's a few times where I thought about, hey, maybe I should rest and back off. But for the most part, it was just pushing, pushing, pushing. You know, there was one time where I, I should have listened to someone. It was when I finished my career at the University of Pittsburgh and I, I got connected with the, uh, the Steelers kicker, which was Gary Anderson. And I called him up and I said, hey, would you like to train together this summer before training camp? Cause I just signed with the lions. And he said, no, I, I don't train at all during, during the off season. I just rest my leg. And I remember thinking at first, wow, he sounds like a, like a lazy professional. 
and all. But <laughs> obviously he had a very long career and I didn't, but that was like the first inkling I had of like, you know, maybe rest actually came was, was something effective. One of the most inspiring parts of your book is that you had so many forks in the road to where you almost wouldn't have achieved your dream of becoming an NFL kicker. Now, whether that's not even kicking for your high school team to where then you go to your first college, Grove City College at the Division Three level, they didn't let you kick there. Obviously, there are several other things that your book touches on. Was there a specific fork in the road moment that really sticks out with you that in your eyes you see as this was really crucial. It was either make or break because there are many of them in your book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I th the biggest moment for me was when I was playing for Gannon University, which is a small division three school in, in Erie. And I had played there two years and I, I was incredibly inaccurate. I, I, my stats, I believe, were like four out of 14, which is which probably would have put me near the bottom of all kickers, division one, two and three. Um, but I had, a, I had a super strong leg. And that was the moment where you know, I, I really, I found, I, I really had to believe in myself and it, you know, like no coach could, could, could encourage me to keep going because statistically I looked really bad. And, and that was like the big moment because I knew I could do it. I just needed a little bit more time. And I ended up, uh, you know, making the plunge and, and, and transferring to the university of Pittsburgh. But I remember my thinking was if I didn't make this move to, to, to transfer to Pitt, that I would, that, that was a bigger risk because my parents, they were pushing me to be more conservative. And, you know, cause I was like the, one of the captains and I had a starting position, but I used to, I, I thought at the time, the bigger risk was, was not taking a risk and, and living with regret that I didn't give it everything I had. And then I figured, well, if hey, I went to university of Pittsburgh and didn't work out, then I would say, Hey, I tried everything I could to, to, to fulfill my dream. So that was probably one of the bigger ones. Another takeaway I had from reading your book is the support system that you had, mm -hmm. your parents attending a lot of your games, but then also people along the way who just out of the kindness of their heart helped you for one reason or another with Deacon and later Priest Larry, your first special teams coach, Pat Comer, uh, your special teams coach, Amos Jones. Just along the way, I was just hoping you'd be able to speak to how they were able to help you achieve your dreams, goals, and aspirations during your career? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I think my path was twofold. You know, like, there was, there's myself believe in my dreams, but like, if there wasn't these, like, you know, like these angels or these supporters that, that came, I, I came across, there's no way I would have been able to keep going. But, um, you know, I, I, I just found that like, just having just a couple other people to believe in what you did. Like when I was in high school and because I didn't play in the football team, I would share this with my, my friends and they would usually laugh at like my whole dream. But I, you know, I, I kept, you know, searching for these type of people and, and, you know, they're, they're out there. And, and Amos Jones, who now is, he's, he's one of the coaches, he's coaching for the New York giants. He was just someone who, you know, he, he saw my talent. He knew I was raw, but it, what I'll never forget about him is, is we would spend a lot of time or, or what I would spend a lot of time announcing my technique after practice, I'd go up and watch video after video of myself. And one day he walked in and he, he, you know, like kind of raised his voice. Cause he got frustrated with me. He's like, why do you keep looking at yourself and, and the mistakes you keep making? Cause I'd go over and like, Oh, why did I put my foot here? And he's like, you're not gonna get any better. If you do that, you have to watch the videos 
of you being successful. And, you know, that was huge for me that, that pretty much changed the whole trajectory of my career because from then on, you know, when I was working on getting better, I would spend far less time on, you know, fixing my mistakes versus, okay, this is what you do. Well, keep that in your mind and keep making your strengths stronger versus like all these little mistakes. And, you know, if it wasn't for Amos, I don't think I would have, I would have switched from being this kicker who could kick it far, but not straight. I think that's a really important point of focusing on how you can be successful because I read things of like, you drive six hours to Villanova. So a special teams coach can tell you no. And now it's like, you know, a quick phone call or a text message, but you drive six hours there and back just to hear that. I hear things like that. And it's like, that's what it takes to have that level of success and to be able to work your way up to where once even you're on the roster, you've got to work your way up the depth chart as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the time, like all the rejections I had from, yeah, I just forgot about that one. You just remember like, Villanova, like, I was rejected by a lot of schools. And at the time, you know, I'd get pretty down. But what I discovered is as I went through my career that my rejections actually prepared me for more rejections where I could get, get over them quicker. Like when I uh, was first, my first uh, release or first cut in the NFL was, was with the lions. And I was pretty upset about that. That took me a while, but then, you know, it got shorter and shorter. Like when I was cut by the Colts, I was able to move on quicker. Um, and so it actually helped knowing that like, yeah, you're cut, but you can keep going. In your playing days at Pitt, I know you played with Alex Van Pelt. He was the team's quarterback. And then Curtis Martin was the team's running back. Do you have any great stories about them, about what they were like in practice? I know both of them went on to pretty well-established NFL careers. What were they like when you played together at Pitt? Yeah, yeah, great guys. And they're still still doing amazing amazing things. Um, Curtis Martin, I, I, so many stories about him. His, his locker was, was, was next to mine, but the, the story I'll never forget was uh, it was near the end of the season. He, he, he was injured and he was out for a few weeks and I was just taking a break because I had an injury. So we we're both in the locker room, the whole team's out in practice and him and I just sat there together alone in the locker room, started talking and I asked him, you know, just like, you know, why he came to pit and so forth. And he told me he didn't start playing football until his junior year in high school, which blew me away. I mean, you, you can find this on the internet, the whole story about, you know, the, the backstory with that, but he wasn't really like in, into football. He was just like amazing athlete. And I believe the person who got him into it was his gym teacher and his gym teacher suggested, Hey, you should play. You should, you should play football. You know, he, there was, there was like a, like a tragic death in his family. And, you know, he, he was going through, you know, things, you know, you know, like, like at home. And so he, he played his junior year. And then of course he blew up all these schools wanted him. He, he went to pit, but he, this was a guy who just, he had the talent. And then when he was ready to, to turn it on, he, he turned it on, like not until like age 17, 18. So I think it's a great story about just, you know, uh, of just, you know, of important, like the mind is, and like, like that was Curtis Martin. I mean, he's just, his mind was just so strong that he could, you know, he could do whatever he wanted to do. So you have that, and then you'll be able to tell your kids too, that you were a teammate of Barry Sanders. And in the book, you <laughs> mentioned playing catch with Barry Sanders, like, if he saw you on the street, would he be like, hey, Sean, what's going on? Would he recognize you? I'm not sure, but, you know, he definitely seemed like the type of guy who has that kind of memory because he's just like like a different guy. Like when I first was with the with Detroit, I was like super intimidated by all the players and so forth. And they had a lot of like, you know, big name players on the team at the time. And it was the first or second practice. And I was just, you know, walking towards the field. He came up to me and asked me if I wanted to play catch with him, warm up. And I was like, sure, of course. So, but 
but it wasn't just that practice. It was every practice. This was like our routine. I would like play catch with Barry Sanders and it just, you know, I think really spoke to his character. He was a guy who just kept a low profile. And so playing catch with this free agent rookie kicker was, is, is something he would do. And then I wasn't surprised that, you know, it was just a handful of years later that he, he retired super early, you know, for him, you know, like he, he was someone who, who, you know, another story about Barry is we were playing the, um, the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys in London. I ran into him. I was around two or three in the morning. I came back to the hotel. I was out partying with the other young guys and he's sitting there reading like, like a little paper book, paperback uh, novel. And we started talking and I told him, Hey, you know, like, you know, I'm worried about getting cut in a couple of weeks. And he told me, he said, Hey, there, don't worry about it. There, there's more than, than life than football. And, you know, he says like, you know, think about what else you're going to do. And I just remember thinking, I, I, I just couldn't do that. But, you know, lo and behold, you know, a handful of years later, he retires because he's, he, he got it for some reason. He was one of those athletes at some early point already understood that, you know, that there was so much more out there beyond, you know, being a running back or a kicker or a quarterback. You mentioned playing at Wembley stadium in the UK. Is there an NFL memory or accomplishment that you're most proud of during your professional career? Yeah, you know, it was probably, you know, I really enjoyed my time in the NFL, but my, my, at the time that I was, I, I had the most fun is when I played for the, the, the Scottish Claymores of the World Football League, which is, which is now defunct. Um, because the players on the team, we were all like, like, like this close to being on an NFL team. A lot of us already were. And then like the, the NFL teams would send us there for more development. And so you had all these guys who were playing you know, some of us were playing for the money, but most of us were just playing for the pure like love of the game. And so that was really exciting for me because it took me back to my days at, at Pitt where we would just go out there and just, just play football. And we were more, more I don't want to say ragtag bunch, but we were just, you know, just, just guys just trying to like, you know, fulfill our dreams, which was, it was a business, but it was just so different than the NFL. So you went from the lions to the Colts in Jim Harbaugh, the Michigan coach was your placeholder. Uh -huh. Was he a loon even back then? <laughs> I wouldn't call him that, but he was, he was a super interesting guy. And, and, you know, going back to like, like how there was like the love of the game for the Scottish Claymores, what I remember the most about Jim Harbaugh was his, his childlike attributes where he just, just love the game. And that's why I like when I see him doing, like you said, like all these, all these loony things, like that's, that's Jim Harbaugh to him. It, it was just a game and he, he was my holder when I was with the Colts and he was someone that, you know, I felt like we made, like we made like a connection there because he, I just wanted to play for the love of the game as well. And I think he picked that up as, as well. Cause a lot of players in the NFL, it's, it's, you know, they just, they just want to get through practice, you know, without being injured, but he was just, just a, a super playful guy. Definitely like seemed different, but not different in like a bad way, but a different in like just someone who's just loves the gridiron. It just loves the game and everything about it. You mentioned your time playing for the Scottish Claymores and I'd imagine playing in Europe that the fans, for whatever reason there, they don't understand all the nuances of American football. They take the kicking game more seriously right. than they do scoring touchdowns. <laughs> so I'm sure that was fun for you though, as a kicker though. Right. It was the weirdest thing. Like we'd score a touchdown and the crowd like, <laughs> great. And then I'd go there and kick the extra point and they would go crazy. I'm like, <laughs> that was six. That was one, but they, they didn't care. But when I came out to kick a field goal. They're, they're all into that. And it was just different. And, you know, I had, you know, it was, you know, when I like warm up, like all these fans would shout, shout to me like encouragement, but that never happened before. But yeah, you're right. The kicker was on a much higher uh, pedestal, so to speak. 
I want to start to transition to your post-playing career. And you talk about the importance that your dad had on your life. Uh, you had mentioned in the book that he had the opportunity to sign a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates, instead joins the Army because they offered his family more money and they needed it at the time. Do you think your dad would have at least played at the collegiate level or maybe even professionally had he not gone into the Army? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and the, the, not just from the words of my dad, because my dad was very humble, didn't tell me much about like his playing career, but like whenever I'd run into one of his his friends, they always told me like your dad was like the best baseball player ever in Erie and so on and so forth. But like that was just just my dad. I mean, he he was the youngest of five and he had this opportunity. And, you know, this is this is back in the, you know, the 60s. You, you do something different. You, you you join the army. But he, you know, even in his you know 40s and 50s, when he played softball, he was like the best player. And he was just 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 super skilled and just worked really hard. You know, and, and I think that's where I got a lot of a lot of this, like this idea of just, you know, just being passionate about something and having your heart into the game. Because because, you know, that that's just what my dad was. He was just very, very playful about the about, about the sports. Gotcha. This next question is a little tough for me to ask, but I mentioned earlier in the, the podcast, a lot of the fork in the road moments to where your first year in college, you're at Grove City College and you're visiting a college in Ohio and you get a DUI as an 18 year old. You don't tell your parents and Deacon Larry at the time was able to, to take you for your court hearing. At any point, did you admit to your parents that you got a DUI in Ohio? I was just curious about that. <laughs> no, I never told him. Wow. Yeah, it just yeah, it just wouldn't have been yeah the thing to do, and it it, it worked out. Well, I, I never I, I wasn't able to drive to Ohio for many years. I just I just did it. That would have been the only way that they would have found out if I drove to Ohio and something happened. But yeah, I just I just kept that kept that in a vault. <laughs> so Deacon Larry helped you out, and he picks you up at five in the morning for your court hearing. Do you ever talk to him now and just ask him like, you know, why did you help me out? Like that to me, the, the selflessness that he showed you was just unbelievable to me. And it showed you what you can do collectively working together mm -hmm. and just out of the kindness of his heart. That to me was one of the most, I, I really feel like that's when your story started to take a turn as well. Yeah, absolutely. And he, st he still does this today. He, he has always worked with, you know, like at risk teens and that's, you know, kind of like, like what I was at the time. And I really don't know how else I would have got through that moment because there was no one else I could go to. Like you mentioned, I, 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 I couldn't have gone to my parents and all my other friends were in college. They didn't have any, any money. So if it wasn't for him, you know, and, and he, he gave me a lot of guidance. It was beyond just helping take me to the court date. He really helped me, you know, become a little less obsessed about training and training. This was like, like a first nugget where I had, where I started to it was kind of like to think a little bit more about that. And it was, we were working out in the, the gym one day and he just, he started getting on me about how, how that's all I did. And he said, well, why don't you spend more time, you know, meditating, praying, just like taking a break from like, just like being so obsessed. He put it in much better words, but that was something I never really thought about. Cause for me at the time, that's all it was, was train my body, train my body, train my body. But he's like, yeah, Hey, there's, you know, you, you, you gotta be a little bit more balanced than that. Like we mentioned before, he was one of several people who helped you, but just because it was so early on in your story and you're at a college that you know that you're going to transfer from, and had he not helped you, your life story, we, we probably wouldn't be talking this afternoon. And so that's kind of how right. I see things. But Absolutely. that was one of the first fork in the road moments in your book, The Point After, where to me, it was just a completely selfless move on his part. 
So you mentioned a little bit earlier about dealing with rejection and how you ultimately, a no sometimes is better than a non-answer because then you can figure out, okay, where do I go to next for the next answer for what it is that I'm trying to achieve? You're at Grove City College. They don't let you kick there. They don't let you on the team. Like, how did you have the fortitude as a teenager to take that and say, hey, you know, I'm going to move on to the next place that provides an opportunity. How did you do that? Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I, I wish it was a simple answer, but it was, it, 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 it took time. You know, I was, I was 18, you know, a freshman. And when he told me he didn't need me, I, I wasn't able to move on very quickly. Actually, I, I, I started bombing in school. I ended, I ended up dropping out, moving back home with my parents. And then when I was up in Erie, this was January. Now I was, I was pretty depressed and, and I would just, I, I even put kicking to the side. I was working out a little bit, but not much. And that's also when, when the DUI was all happening. So it took me a good while to, you know, I, I basically like threw myself a pity party for like three or four months, but then, you know, there just came a certain point where, you know, I knew I just, you know, had to get back on the horse, so to speak. And I started training in the dead of winter in Erie, which, you know, back in the day, you know, Erie, we'd get snow like in like November, early December, and you wouldn't see the grass until I remember like, uh, like, Mar like March Madness, you know, like the NCAA tournament, which is like, like April, I always remember the going out and finally playing basketball in the driveway. Um, so I would just start kicking in this on the snow, like, you know, like, you know, 12 feet of snow, sometimes frozen, I'd clear a spot and kick, which I, you know, I really helped me get out of my head. I think that's what helped me get out of this, you know, lethargy of, you know, thinking like a woe is me. And I would just start kicking and kicking. And that's, that just kind of reignited the dream that I have to just like, keep moving on. So after your playing career, you decide to hang it up, both you and your wife, Karen have, I think two children at that point. But how rewarding was it for you to push your wife, Karen's dreams teaching yoga? And this was in the 90s, yoga wasn't what it is now in the new millennium, but how rewarding was it for you to push your wife's dream teaching yoga the same way she supported your NFL career? Yeah, um, it was such a great role reversal. Yeah, like you said, and for years, she was my support system. And now my career was done. And you know, she had a dream. And it was just amazing to see what she built, because she also went through all kinds of challenges. Because as you mentioned, like when, when she started teaching yoga, it was, it was completely out there, was not mainstream. And we were hoping at best that we could just break even because it, 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 it just seemed like something that happened in California and New York, but, but, but certainly not in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Are you still instructing yoga now? Yeah, we're still doing the yoga thing, I guess, going on 20 years, 20 years plus now. And yeah, now it's now it's everywhere. You know, LeBron James does yoga and meditation. You know, Kobe Bryant was really into it. And, you know, Dan Marino does you like, like everyone does it now. And, you know, we, we work with we, we work with the Steelers in the past. We've worked with the Pitt football team. And and that's just you know understood now that at that level that you bring some sort of yoga, meditation, mindfulness into your game if you want to be at the at the top of your game. Absolutely. With the flexibility that makes a lot of sense too, because your weight training, and I'm sure you know this as someone who played at an NFL level, you're doing a lot of the same lifts. You're actually kind of limiting your muscle movement versus, you know, you get that yoga, you get that flexibility and how important that that is. Right. Absolutely. That's huge. And, and, and for me, my, if I would have listened to my uh, wife, girlfriend at the time, and would have started doing yoga in the nineties, there's a, there's a chance that I would have had a longer career, but 
there was, like you said, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just doing weights. I'm just doing sprints. And there was, and, and then my, my position, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And this is for all sports. We when they do this repetitive motion over and over, and over again, if they don't bring in something like, like yoga, chances are those, those muscles are not going to last, last too long. As we start to wrap up here on stuck in misery, I wanted to ask you too, is there a current NFL kicker who reminds you of yourself? Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's a tough question. I don't, I don't know if I can answer. Cause you know, when I watch him now, like, and I, I guess I think more of like the mental uh, uh, aspect of what they're all going through. So, so when I watch NFL games, I just, I root for every single kicker and I don't want them to go through any sort of, any sort of misery, any sort of, of something like um, uh, who's the, the kicker for, for the bears, Cody, Cody Parkey. Uh, yes. Yes. Like, like that, like, I don't want to see any of those moments. And so uh, just knowing what they're going through, but you know, it's interesting. Like when I was trying to make the NFL, I'd watch these games. I would, I would look for, Oh, maybe I could play for that team. Cause that kicker struggling, but now it's like the complete opposite. I'm just, I'm rooting for every single kicker. So they don't go through who knows what, cause yeah, I know for a lot of these kickers, they miss few, they're cut. That's that could be it. And then they, they, they live with that for, for many years. And I know your book details that pretty thoroughly as it's as much mental and confidence as it is anything physically that you're doing in that the mental output a kicker has to have to be able to be successful for a team because it's make or break. It's make or miss. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all these kickers that have made the NFL, their they're, skills, they're, they're amazing. And unfortunately, like the margin of error for kickers is so small and it's typically, you know, you know, you miss, you miss two in a row, like, like, like what's going on, you know, you miss three out of four, like what's going on. You're, you're, you're probably gone next week. And unfortunately for kickers, like you, you, you can't have a slump unless you are like, you know, the Morton Andersons or the Gary Andersons of the world, any sort of mini slump is usually it. And, and what's so challenging about that is if you're a young kicker and you've missed three out of four, statistically, unless your head's a mess, statistically, now you're going to make the next four or five kicks, but just, missing a couple, you know, that, 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 that could be it. Very slim margin of error. Do you still have the self-made kicking tee that you mentioned several times in your book? <laughs> I do. And I, I still have my ball bag for the Detroit lions. It's down in my basement. And, uh, I still have the, the footballs. They're all completely deflated. Um, I, 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 I try to, to, to resuscitate them not too long. It didn't work. I guess the bladders on the inside only last so long, but, um, my son, kicks here and there he plays other sports but every once in a while he, he likes to go to the field and and uh just kick it around but yeah we still have that tee he won't use my tee there's now all these newfangled tees that they're that people pay 30 bucks for which i don't understand but you know all he needs is a two by four and some bendable metal but <laughs> that's fantastic well sean it's a pleasure talking with you one thing i noticed too Captain Crunch, not Wheaties, the breakfast of champions. You mentioned Captain Crunch a few times in the book. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay, I, listen, I'll advocate on your behalf to get a Captain Crunch deal. You can be the face of Captain <laughs> Crunch. Oh, I mean, you know, back in the day, that's what it was, right? It was just so simple. Like just four or five bowls of cereal, you're, you're good for the day. <laughs> I love it. Check out Sean Conley's book, The Point After. I flew through it, Sean. I read it in a few days. 200 some pages. It is a very entertaining read and a very inspiring read as well. Sean, thank you so much for joining Stuck in Misery this afternoon. I appreciate that, Mark. It was really fun being on here with you today. Thank you. For Sean Connolly, I'm Mark Bergen. Thank you for listening to Stuck in Misery. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your shows. Take care. So long, everyone, and I'll see you next time.